Hey everyone, I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, a podcast for InterVarsity alumni. Life after college is hard, and even a great experience with your InterVarsity chapter doesn't shield you from the challenges of transition. As we hear stories from real alumni learning how to make it in their post-InterVarsity reality, my hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Hello, alumni, and welcome to After Four, the podcast that's just for you. I'm John Steele, and it's time to get this week's episode underway. But before we jump into the topic for today, I just wanted to give a quick reminder about Urbana stories. Every month until Urbana in December, we're going to hear from an Urbana-specific guest on the podcast who's not only leading in some capacity at Urbana 22, but who also has stories of their own transformation from past Urbanas. And we want to hear from you too, alumni. If you have a story to tell about how Urbana challenged you, how it changed your relationship with God, or what the most important thing is for others to know about Urbana, I would love to hear from you. Urbana 22 is just around the corner, and we want to hear your stories so we can keep getting excited together. So, if you have stories to share, I want you to do three things. First, go to the show notes for this episode and see the written prompts for what to share. Second, make a video of yourself responding to one or more of those prompts. And third, send it to me at alumni at intervarsity.org. All responses will have a chance to end up on the podcast, on our Instagram, and on the official Urbana Instagram as well. So get recording because I'm really excited to hear from you, alumni. All right. As we all know, one of the staples of any InterVarsity experience is scripture. It's the encouragement to read scripture on your own. It's manuscript studies. It's large groups and conferences with people speaking from scripture. Growing in our love for God's Word is one of the four loves that we are always in pursuit of, the other three being growing in love for God Himself, His people of every ethnicity and culture, and His purposes in the world. Well, today's episode and next week's episode are all about pastor and author Drew Jackson's unique engagement with Scripture over the last couple years. Drew is a University of Chicago alumnus and former Los Angeles area InterVarsity staff, and he's taken the book of Luke and written poetry that is informed by themes from the first eight chapters, themes that are particularly meaningful to him as a black man navigating the landscape of today's culture in the United States. The book is called God Speaks Through Wombs, and let me tell you, it is a fascinating, challenging, and moving read. I highly recommend using your lifetime alumni discount to pick up a copy for yourself. So today we're going to spend some time getting to know Drew, getting some context for his book, finding out what and who inspired him to write, and we'll also learn a little bit about what his book is and isn't for. And then next week, Drew and I are actually going to walk through a few pieces from his book. But for now, let's jump into the first half of this conversation and spend some time getting to know Drew. This one's for you, alumni. Well, Drew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, John. I'm so excited to have you joining us. We've got a lot of great things to talk about. Before we jump into talking about your book, I'd love to just get a little bit of background about you. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing right now. And then we'll work our way backwards and then we'll work our way forwards again. Yeah. So who am I? (laughs) (laughs) I know it's a big question. (laughs) Answer it however you would like. So I'm here in Manhattan, my wife, Janae, and our seven-year-old twin daughters. We've been here for just over 
four years at this point. We moved up here to plant a church in the East Village neighborhood. Prior to being here, we were in the Lehigh Valley, Mm -hmm. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania for a few years. We had moved there when we found out we were having twins because that's where Janae's family's at. We were in LA and didn't have any family out there. I was finishing up seminary at Fuller. My wife was doing her master's in public health at USC. And I was also doing staff work with InterVarsity at the time at Occidental College and also with Black students in the greater Los Angeles area. Let's talk a little bit about alumni life or even pre-alumni life. Where did you go to school? When did you graduate? What did you study while you were in school? Tell us a little bit about that. I went to University of Chicago and I studied political science with a focus in international relations and graduated in 2011. I assume that University of Chicago then is where you got connected to InterVarsity. Tell us a little bit about your time as a student there. So I got connected pretty late in my tenure at Chicago, and I didn't just kind of come into the fellowship and start attending. I came in to help start BCM on campus. That was my introduction (laughs) to InterVarsity. A friend of mine called me over the summer and she was like, hey, we're thinking about trying to get this thing together for Black students on campus. Do you want to be a part of it? I'm like, yeah, I'm down. And so, (laughs) yeah, we just started gathering Black students. Shout out to my staff. My staff worker was Lauren Duick, and we had a volunteer staff who was working specifically with BCM, Brandon Wrencher. Brandon has become one of my closest friends. At the time, he was a seminary student and was doing some volunteer work, and he just took me in (laughs) as like just the older brother sort of figure, uh, which I really needed during that time. Especially because I was processing a lot about my own future. I thought I was going to head to law school. Like I said, my focus was international relations. And so I was interested in getting into foreign policy work. But Jesus was doing some things in me that (laughs) were sort of rocking that a little bit for me. As I came to discover more and more about the heart of God, God's heart for justice. What does it mean to be engaged in the work of the kingdom of God? And I had felt a call to ministry when I was 11 years old. I had sort of put that in the back of my mind for a long time, and it sort of began to resurface during that time for me. Brandon was just a real mentor for me, helping me navigate all that stuff. And when I think about my memories with InterVarsity, it was really my relationship with Brandon and seeing God build this community of Black students on campus, seeing people come to faith, seeing the whole community form. You know, it started pretty small with like, seven folks. And then by the time I was gone, we had close to 40 to 50 folks. You've touched on this a little bit, but I wonder as you were moving towards graduation, were there particular things that you were, you said that you were starting to have some of these things work out in your mind of like, I felt this call to ministry as a younger person. And now I'm kind of sensing that be reinvigorated. Were there things that you were going into graduation with that you were anticipating like, okay, so this is what I'm going to do after I graduate now? Were there expectations you had for your life going into graduation? And then how did reality actually match up to those expectations? Well, going into graduation, I kind of knew what was immediately next. During the same time that I got connected with InterVarsity, I had also gotten connected with a church in the area. And the pastor also became a mentor for me. When I had made the decision that I wasn't going to go to law school, that instead I was going to pursue seminary, as soon as I graduated, he brought me on as a pastoral intern. 
And that was only for this summer, but I knew that I was getting ready to head out to L.A. The one thing I didn't know was that I was going to end up on staff with InterVarsity first time. <laughs> because before I left Chicago, I was actually approached about coming on staff and I told them no. Yeah. Like, I, I told them. I, <laughs> Who hasn't been there, Drew? Yeah, I, t- I told them no. <laughs> but when I got out to seminary, I just had this sense that I needed some sort of way to practically work out all of the stuff that I was learning in the classroom to suss out what mattered and what didn't. (laughs) And so at first I started volunteering with the chapter at Pasadena City College, working alongside of Natalia Cohn and Jana Louie. And yeah, I learned a lot from them. And then I came on staff full time. So that was an unexpected turn. I didn't foresee that coming. (laughs) Oh, man. Is that not the story of almost all of us who have been on staff? (laughs) I didn't see that coming. Okay, so then you're on the West Coast, you're doing Uh staff, you're at Fuller Seminary, then you and your wife find out that you're pregnant with twins, move to Pennsylvania, you're in Pennsylvania for a few years, and then you move to Manhattan. Where in this process does your book start to work itself into your story? The book as it is didn't really start to take shape until pandemic. But I've always been someone who's interested in the poetic. I really came into it through a love of hip hop. I'm the youngest of four boys. And so my older brothers, like my oldest brother's driving. and I'm riding in the backseat of the car with him and he's got all sorts of stuff playing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm listening to Nas and Tupac and Biggie and Jay-Z and all these artists. And I was always fascinated by what they could do with words, how they could create just a whole scene and story and take you into it and the rhyme schemes and the wordplay. And there was something about that that was always captivating to me. And I started writing my own words and rhymes and all of those sorts of things, doing that in college and my spare time. When I graduated, though, I wasn't writing like that anymore. Most of my writing started to be Sermons, (laughs) Sermons, <laughs> like you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't until the pandemic hit, all of us in different ways were doing a lot of internal excavation. And I really needed something to process the world and to process my own emotional landscape, especially being here in Manhattan, where the pandemic hit so hard early on, not being able to leave the apartment hearing siren after siren after siren outside and just kind of knowing what it is, but not really knowing because there was still so much unknown about COVID at that point. And then processing the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor. Poetry, I say it really found me in a very new and important way during Mm -hmm. that time. The writing and reading of poetry became like a spiritual practice for me before it was anything else. I didn't set out to write a book. I just started writing. (laughs) I think during that time, one of the things I needed was to be in conversation with some people who understood the experience of being a part of a historical narrative of oppression. I think part of my experience has been when I've processed things around race in America and my own experience of being a Black man and some of the things that I've gone through, being told either that I'm making it up or Mm -hmm. that it wasn't 
that serious, all of these things to sort of minimize the realities of things and come in the conversation in a different way with the characters in the mm. Gospel of Luke was something that was very life-giving for me. I found myself in Luke because I know that Luke is already trying to do something in particular, bringing the voices of those who have been pressed to the margins, to the center, and for us to hear this story from them. And then I got intrigued to say, what would it look like if poetry began to rise out of interaction with the Gospels in our time? And that was partly because I was rereading the Psalms. And there are rabbinic traditions that talk about how the five books of the Psalter are in conversation with the themes of the five books of Torah and how they're mm -hmm. not meant to be direct commentaries on them. And so that sort of piqued my interest. And I wanted to hear what the Gospels would give birth to. And I would say that I didn't write this collection of poetry to be a commentary, you know, like you would pick up a commentary if you were preparing for a sermon. But I think part of what I was trying to do is to say that I have been told in different ways throughout my life, whether directly or indirectly, that when it comes to how you engage and interpret scripture, you basically have to put your own experience to the side so that you can have a plain reading of the text. I just don't think that exists. <laughs> I don't believe that exists. It is impossible for any of us to read the text of scripture and to not read it through our lens. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about the ways that the rabbis engaged the text of the Hebrew scriptures. All of these rabbinic commentary on the text that's like, it doesn't just mean this thing. It could mean this. And there's this here and there's this here and there's this here. And there's no attempt to say, well, we've got to get it down to what is the one meaning of the text. It's like, yeah. here it is. It's all, it's this communal engagement with yeah. all of this. And so I think part of what I was doing was just to engage the text in that way, to not say this is the one meaning of the text, yeah. but to bring my own, like, I say this in the intro, I am reading the text unapologetically as a black man who is navigating the landscape of American life. Hmm. And I actually think that when we can acknowledge the lenses that we come to the text with, that when we are able to bring that in conversation with the collective, that we see something more beautiful, we bring all of those things to the table of interpretation together. One of the beautiful things about that is that someone can say something about the text and the community can side eye that like, ah, together we're looking at that and saying, I don't know if that's valid. And so it's not to say that any reading of the text goes, but it's to say that there is a beauty in understanding this collective aspect of things and to say that I can bring myself to the reading of this, not have to put that to the side, and that that is actually part of the work of interpretation. I think that there's something powerful about opening yourself to more creative engagements with scripture. Whatever you consider your standard way yeah, yeah. of studying scripture, there are some other really creative ways to engage scripture that I think brings the text to life, puts you in the story, puts the story in you mm -hmm. in ways that you don't get in other places. And that that's mm -hmm. really helpful for the text being alive and meaningful and relevant to us today mm -hmm. and not just a dusty old text written by these people in a different world than what we live in. There's a lot of really useful things that we can learn as a community that's studying the Bible together. 
Drew, can we start taking some steps into your book together? There's a few different things that I would love to ask you about. The very first of which I can't help myself, but to ask a name drop question. The foreword of your book is written by John Batiste. Tell me about that. How did that come about? (laughs) Yeah. So John, he's a good friend of mine. John walked into our church one day. This was before we officially launched. He was living in the neighborhood in the East Village at the time and just kind of walked into our service, (laughs) sat in the back. (laughs) And we just ended up getting to know each other over the years, have become friends. And he's been one of the people who has been the most important for me in pulling the artist out of me. And I think a lot of it has been just through his naming of it in me in ways that I wasn't paying attention to. If you haven't engaged with John at all, he's a real genuine, authentic person. Everything you see of John in the public sphere is who he is. The sort of just infectious joy that he carries. And when you think of somebody who's like an artist in like the truest sense of the word, he is. You know, we'll be sitting there eating and he'll just start humming a tune that he hears out of nowhere. And (laughs) I asked him about it one time and he said, you know, I just really believe that music just lives out there, that there's just this sort of flame that it exists on. (laughs) And he's like, I'm just constantly there. Like I'm always hearing different things. So I don't just sort of being with him and being around him brought that out more and more. That's awesome. What a gift to be able to engage with a talented creative who has obviously received great affirmation in his abilities. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that that that's very encouraging to be able to have a friend like that who can take his life experiences and speak into like, you've got something here, Drew. You have talent that needs to be used and expressed. That's very cool. And if anybody's listening who doesn't know much about John Batiste, just look up John Batiste playing the melodica on YouTube or something. (laughs) (laughs) That will give you just a small taste of this man's talent. And that's the guy that's writing the forward to this book. And so that's exciting to me as we continue to take deeper steps into your book. Something else that I'm interested in as I was reading the introduction to your book, there's a significant portion of that introduction that talks about your mother's influence. Can you speak just a little bit to how your mother influenced this book or just influenced your creativity throughout life? Uh, Where do I begin with my mom? The book's dedicated to her. She's been probably the biggest influence in my life in terms of just pure discipleship. Just in terms of her being someone who would teach me the way of Jesus. She was a teacher, but she's also an artist. She was a visual artist, but she was also a writer and a poet herself. And so I just grew up in a house where creativity was always happening. The basement of our house was basically her studio. And so she was always just experimenting and making things and stuff that would go up in the house. And she was an interior designer. And so she would do other people's houses. And so I just loved that aspect of just seeing the thing that gave her so much life. She came alive when she was creating. And I think there's also this element of her in the church context we grew up in. So much of who she was was suppressed in that context. Mm -hmm. Like I said, she was a teacher and she could teach with anybody. But there was never really a space for her to do that unless it was you can teach the children 
as I saw the ways that she came to life when she was able to kind of step into those spaces and also when she was creating, but I also learned from her the beautiful art of resistance and mm. how even in those spaces, my mom found ways to resist the status quo, to challenge it. So one of the things she used to do was the church that we were at also had a school and the students in the school would always do this thing where they would work on this one big project, whether it was a theater piece or some kind of art display. But they would always ask my mom to come in and help them. And the church we were in was a super conservative church. So one time she comes to help the students and she's got jeans on. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like they told her, you're going to have to go change or this, that, and the other. And she was like, no. <laughs> and she was like, that's fine. I'll leave. If your students want help, they can come to me. And so we had a line of students come to our house, <laughs> you know, even just the subtle things like that and the ways that she gave me the permission to question, to not just take at face value what was being told to me about Jesus, about scripture, about the way things are supposed to be. And that was part of her discipling of us to just like, no, you don't have to just because someone says it this way doesn't mean that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't know. As we're having this conversation, there's all sorts of things that are coming up for me and just thinking about the ways that she's impacted me. But one of the things I'm thinking about is just how she was such a deep lover of scripture and found ways to teach us scripture without sitting down and saying, <laughs> read this. You know what I mean? Even in her art, she found ways to incorporate scripture. So she would like make a piece that was going to go up in the bathroom that as we're getting ready for the day would be a part of what we're taking in. I just clearly remember I'll be standing there brushing my teeth in the morning and reading texts from Acts that times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Things like that, that <laughs> is just around me all the yeah. time. And I don't realize how much I'm taking it in. You know, we had something over one of the doorways, the entrance of your words gives light. Little subtle things like that, that I'm just like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is amazing because obviously a creative mind at work to think of putting a text like that next to the door. That's amazing to me. And even speaks to the conversation that we've already had about there are other creative ways to engage scripture than maybe the ones that we've just been taught of sitting yes. down and sort of hammering a particular way into your brain. You can hide God's word in your heart by creatively posting it on your walls around the house in very strategic spots so that these important pieces can get inside of you so that you are thinking about them through the day. It almost reminds me of some of the Celtic practices of daily mm -hmm. offices. Every time I enter this room, I'm yep. reminded of this text, which is yep. so parallel to every day at this time, I repeat these texts and that there are ways that we can include those into our life and have that stuff sit with us. 100%. I love that parallel. That's so cool. And this is one of the people that's inspired this book and the things that you've put together here long before you even knew it would become a book. I don't know about the rest of you, but I am a huge fan of documentaries and behind-the-scenes specials. I grew up watching Behind the Music on VH1 back when VH1 was almost exclusively a music channel. Almost anything 30 for 30 from ESPN and the toys or movies that made us on Netflix. And the list goes on, but you get the idea. This conversation with Drew feels like a similar genre to me. 
I love getting to hear where Drew came from and the threads that were being woven together over the course of his life to inspire God Speaks Through Wombs. These, I'm sure at the time, seemingly unrelated life events and passions were being used by God to create something meaningful and important. Now, you may not have a book published with IVP as an end result, but I wonder what life events and passions are inspiring you. What things are influencing what you create, where you choose to live or work, or the countless other decisions that you're making each day? What inspires you, alumni? How has God been moving in important ways in your everyday life after college? If you have a story to share about that, send me a message on SpeakPipe. You can check the show notes for that or a DM on Instagram at After4Pod. I would really love to hear from you. Drew, thanks so much for joining us today. I loved getting to hear your story leading up to the creation of God Speaks Through Wombs, and I am excited for you to join us again next week. Thanks again, Drew. Well, you know what that music means. It's time to wrap up another episode, alumni. Come on back next week, though, for the conclusion to my conversation with Drew, where we actually get to hear the author and poet himself read a few pieces from his book, God Speaks Through Wombs. And then, after each piece, Drew's going to break them down for us. So, if you haven't already, go get a copy of God Speaks Through Wombs, read it in preparation for next week, and come back ready to hear some amazing, and I think for many of us, challenging works inspired by the Gospel of Luke. I know I say this every week, but that's because it's true. You really don't want to miss this. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast, set those episodes to download automatically, and send the link to your friends. And hey, if your platform allows you to rate and leave a review, please do that as well. Oh, one last thing. How's this for a Minnesota goodbye? If you have Urbana stories to share, be sure to check out the show notes for simple instructions on how to get those to us. All right. I promise that's actually it this time. I will see you in the after, alumni.